Welcome, everybody, to Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast, going against my better judgment. First time we've done video on the podcast. Carmen, they told me I had a face for podcasting, so <laughs> this is, I don't, we'll, we'll see what happens with uh, video on this. But uh, anyway, pleased today to have my guest on, Carmen Batista, and we're going to talk some shit. We're going to talk hydrogen. This is going to be cool stuff. Um, but Carmen, let's get started. Where'd we meet? Well, funnily enough, actually, we met through a, a shared boxing coach, Lou Savrezi, uh, a dear friend of both of ours. And Lou's one of those great kind of guys that, you know, you're there sparring with him and after the round he's going, oh, you know, how's the job going? And at that particular uh, moment in time, I was, uh, I co-founded and was raising funds for a, a different uh, hydrogen company and I was telling him how it was going. And Lou said, oh, you know, let me help you with that. I know some people in that industry. And you kind of pinch of salt. You're like, all right, Lou, you know, I appreciate the help. Always accept help when it's offered because so few people go out of their way to help you. And he wasn't lying. He connected me with you. And you, of course, gave me a lot of help and counsel and introduced me to some people who ultimately became interested in investing in that uh, previous venture. I know, isn't that just crazy? The um, if you think about it, back in the day, Lou fought Foreman, right? He fought Tyson, and he fought Holyfield. And uh, boxing, there are certain boxing critics out there that think he beat Foreman and that he beat Holyfield. Tyson, not so much. No, <laughs> no. Uh, well, I mean, what a what a terrible timing to be world champion, right? You know, he beats Foreman, he's top of the world, and then along comes. A young, hungry, mean Mike Tyson. Like, you know, it's it's like being the second best 100-meter sprinter when Usain Bolt's around. Yeah, that's probably fair. That's probably fair. But, yeah, you're right. No, I always tell people that my boxing training is like 20% boxing and 80% therapy because right. we're just two old men out there punching the bag, lamenting life and uh, and the like. So, yeah, no, so Lou introduces us. Uh, we go get sushi, as I recall, right, was kind right. of the, the opening thing. So tell, tell the audience about your background. How'd you, how'd you get to eating sushi that day? <laughs> well, um, so I, um, I grew up in England, um, son of a speech therapist and a, a, a lawyer who became a social worker. Wonderful parents really instilled a lot of values of education in, for me. Um, I was lucky enough to go to Oxford, which opened a, a lot of doors for me. Um, oh, I got a great story. Yep. So the um, head of the, I believe it was electrical engineering department at Rice University, because that's where I went, was Dr. Tittle. And Dr. Tittle was from England. And uh, anyway, my brother Jay was an electrical engineer, and Jay got a scholarship to go get a master's degree at Cambridge. And 
Jay comes up to Dr. Tittle and says, hey, you know, I'm going to go to England and I'm going to do this at Cambridge. And Dr. Tittle in his British accent said, said, oh my gosh, that's very prestigious. Only Oxford is better. <laughs> <laughs> totally just deflated Brother Jay. Kind of, oh. what? what? <laughs> well, you know, I, I think it's, uh, you know, it's much of a muchness, right? You know, it's... Uh, it's due like a Mars bar or, or a Snickers bar more there. Yeah, Harvard uh, or Yale. I mean, yeah, right. exactly. But it's, it's all about what you do with it, right? So it's a great education, but um, there's no clear path afterwards. You kind of have to go and, and find something to do. And um, be a, being a classicist, there was no clear path for me. So I was very lucky that Shell came and did a, a trading recruitment event at the university. I thought, well, this sounds fun. You know, I've always enjoyed board games and um, I like that element of calculated risk in trading. And I like the fact that Shell seemed like a really great company where it would kind of take you and in your raw clay form and incubate you. And yeah, I had a wonderful career at Shell. Um, worked um, in London, Houston, Barbados, um, trading a range of different uh, oil products in a range of different geographies and really learn a whole lot um, commercially and about oil trading um, through Shell and uh, still got very fond memories. I think you only realise what a great company Shell is when you cease to work there. So it's it's <laughs> a, a really great um, place to work. Now with Shell's balance sheet, were you proprietary trading trying to make money or is this more logistics of trading the products they're creating or was it some of both sure so um you do get both types of traders at shell you get more supply traders typically around crude supplying the refinery and you get proprietary traders like i was so initially that was in derivatives um so uh, proprietary trading down the curve um trading uh, relative value um, typically of like refining margins, so cracks, spreads, all that good stuff, a little bit of flat price, um, and uh, then went on to proprietary trading in Latin America and West Africa, where Shell had actually divested its um, its footprint, um, actually at the time, to Vito, which is quite an interesting move strategically because Shell wanted to divest those West African assets Due to liability reasons, even though they were profitable, yet when they divested them, they divested them whilst allowing VTOL to uh, operate under the Shell Pecton logo. So, whether or not they truly achieved their goal of divesting the liability, right? Another matter. Oh, interesting. So, you go from Shell, what do you do next? Uh, I went on to a Chinese National Oil Company and uh, headed up their oil trading in the Americas for four years. So I'm focused on Latin America, and the arbitrage between uh, uh, US and China um, for a number of products from ranging from LPG to ethanol. Ethanol was quite interesting at the time. It was quite a transformative tra change. You know, a, a lot of the most profitable trades in physical oil trading revolve around policy and the change in policy. So that interaction between China and America and China's ethanol policy was really interesting. And by getting ahead of the curve on that was very lucrative. Um, did that for four years. 
ultimately uh, became the cliche burnt out trader. <laughs> uh, uh, grand old age of uh, 33, having traded for 12 years. Um, and really then wanted to recenter and refocus on um, ESG tech and the energy transition, which I think is broadly representative of the larger theme we see at the moment among commodity traders, the more far-sighted ones such as Mercuria and Trafigura are investing very heavily in uh, clean energy now um, and focusing on uh, environmental products like carbon credits, which is fantastic to see. I think that commodity trading houses are one of the best barometers of capitalism um and it's great maybe when, the purest yeah the purest form of capitalism yeah. yeah no exactly and so if you see those guys saying okay and they're private companies as well so when you see private pure capitalist companies and i say that's compliment right refocusing on clean energy and emergent energy tech you think oh energy transition 2.0 this is a real thing yeah you know i had dan pickering on the on the podcast and have had him in a clubhouse room before and his whole shtick, which is hundred percent correct is this isn't a government regulatory project forcing us to do this. This is a true tidal wave. Yeah. This is consumers, it's companies, it's people saying we want less carbon on the planet. Yeah. So it's a real thing. And I, I think it's so clever. I, I really, you know, for me, it, it was a choice between two things, right? It was going and finding next stage tech that really moves the needle in the energy transition. Or if I couldn't do that, I always said, I'll give myself a few years to do it. And if I can't do that, I'll go and requalify and become a carbon credit trader. Because once you're an energy trader, right. it doesn't matter if it's potatoes tomatoes unicorn, widgets, widgets whatever you know unicorn horns in narnia like it's all the same right. thing that you're trading so i think the mechanism of carbon credits and environmental products is going to be so very huge in allowing this uh this morph in what the energy mix looks like and i think california has actually done a real solid one for the rest of the country in trialing at great expense how this looks like and how this works. I think the LCFS program is quite a powerful tool for change. And I think I put value in carbon and putting a uh, price around it, especially in the US, to a less degree in Europe, because we've not quite got a United States of Europe yet. But wherever you've got a group of countries or states that can work together and have common value on carbon price that can drive change meaningful yeah. change. yeah you know it's going to be interesting and we can probably do a, a whole podcast around that um my reticence on the carbon credit market and how that all works because i mean at the end of the day you basically just have to put a price on carbon you right. know and to reduce consumption i mean i i think we all get that I just don't know how that functions within the framework of the United States, China, and India not having a clue what we're going to do. You, you know what I mean? It, it seems like those three need to get into a room and just figure this out 
and then the cards will kind of fall where they may right. um in terms of of figuring all that out but like i said we do a whole podcast on that and we probably will i mean because it's going to be a thing right and and ultimately it, it is the impossible because there's that interplay between um, developing countries or one could argue developed countries now saying that they have the right to have their industrial revolution be it 50 years later than america um so that it it will be very difficult if not impossible to come to a global carbon price but um hope i think as a start you'll have america and europe individually i think really difficult when you look at the double digit gdp growth in africa really really difficult to impose uh carbon credit penalties there but my thinking is that the developed countries of this world will be able to suitably invest and develop green fuels like electricity, renewable electricity, hydrogen, to such a point that they may be actually be cheaper alternatives to fossil fuels, and therefore you will allow Latin America and West Africa leapfrog yeah and adopt those technologies without those carbon credits yeah i mean in cell in uh in the phone business i mean africa's not laying phone lines anywhere they just went straight to cellular right so yeah no i i uh i i get that and that that does make a lot of sense because i've said this on the podcast before i mean if we were starting from scratch today to create an energy infrastructure, we probably just start with hydrogen, you know? Um, the thing we've got going is we've got this just massive infrastructure that does a really, really good job of delivering energy. Yep. Um, and it's just built to, uh, built to around hydrocarbons. And so it's the transition of that is what we've kind of got to, got to navigate. Um, and, so and that's why, why I think what drew me to the market is that there's so many problems that need to be overcome there's so many technology gaps so you talk about infrastructure rollout there's a huge number of challenges to be solved but if you can help solve those challenges there's a huge amounts of profit to be made as well like because it does require a complete infrastructure overhaul something that we haven't seen like uh, in a much shorter space of time than I mean, you look at standard oils pipeline network that will be smaller than what we need to do in renewable energy now and probably even this isn't the right word for it but maybe even inflation adjusted if you will i mean when they were rolling all that right. stuff out back in the day pretty massive but to your point smaller than what we're we're gonna do going forward and you know i get kind of beat up on my podcast because uh everybody always says i'm trashing the energy business and i'm really not i'm i'm very pro energy i'm very pro hydrocarbon so i'm gonna go ahead and say it at the risk of sucking up to my to my enemies i mean it really is morally wrong to deny folks energy yeah i mean when you're burning wood you're burning animal dung i mean your life expectancy is half 
what you and I have because we can turn on a light and have electricity and the like. So I, I really do feel there is a, and I'm stealing kind of Alex Epstein's terminology for it, but there's a moral calling to make sure folks have cheap, affordable energy because it really does make life better. Yeah, and you look at, um, in our own experience in Houston, um, how we've been able to deal with the freeze, flooding, the energy resilience. You know, I think there's clearly going to be a need for a diverse mix of energy sources going forward. It's not going to be a single solution. And transition, I think transition's rather a nice word. In my opinion, transition doesn't imply an abrupt halt of one and a start of another. It implies a more gradual, staggered uh, effect whereby over time those same energy companies you know, Shell has morphed over the years, now predominantly an LNG business. Um, BP has got great aspirations. So has Chevron, um, you know, uh, in their energy ventures team. So I think those companies do have the dry powder, the engineering expertise that they can come become some of the biggest champions of the energy of the future. Yeah, a buddy of mine just got elected to the board of... Uh of exxon so andy's andy's always been a clean and andy karsner got elected to the to the board of exxon and he's always been a clean energy guy so uh exxon's going to have their hands full in the boardroom with uh with andy so one quick kind of funny story my dad decides he needs solar panels at the house right so he get solar panels put in, Tesla batteries on the wall and the like. And I'm sitting there talking to dad. I go, dad, how much does this cost? And dad's like, ah, $125,000. And I'm like, <laughs> wow. I'm like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm one fourth of the inheritance. Right. I think it's kind of fair <laughs> question to ask. And I go, all right, well, you know, dad. And he goes, yeah, but I, don't, I never have to buy electricity again. I go, okay, what's kind of the payback on that? And he goes, 12 years. And I was like, dude, you're 81. <laughs> I mean, I go, I go, I hope you're here to see payback on this, but you know. And uh, so anyway, he's like, well, I just went off the grid, blah, blah, blah. So well, what what you don't know is your dad actually secretly has a very large cannabis grow farm underneath the yeah, house. Right. So, I mean, so his payback is really his payback. Quick. <laughs> Oh, actually, you'll appreciate this because dad has an incredibly dry British sense of humor. So during the ERCOT mess, yep. when the freeze is happening, my house down in Richmond is equal distance from the fire department, the police department, and the hospital. Right. So I always thought I'm bulletproof on my part of the grid, right? It's never going down. I'm right, right. in the middle of all this. Boom, lights go out twice. Right. Uh, electricity off. It's freaking cold, right? So anyway, I show up over to my parents' house. I've got, you know, cat in the carrier, you know, bag under my arms. And I walk in and I sit down and under his breath in a very deadpan way, dad goes, 12-year payback doesn't sound so bad right about now, does it? <laughs> like, you know, it's a good fair, point. Fair, fair enough, dad. You talk about um, something we can get to on the hydrogen later, but that, uh, that, Backup power generation, that electricity on demand for schools, hospitals, data centers, that um, the 
capacity to replace. You know, you can't really beat gas-powered uh, electricity um, on a kilowatt-hour basis, but you can beat heating oil generators. And that, if you look at the northeast, the backup generators around there and the dates and the new data centers they're building, there's a very real possibility that you have. Um, I've used solar, which works well, or you can use hydrogen on site to have their their backup generation and that's a a real first step because you can't build Rome in a day you need small wind bursts so we talked about the LCFS program how uh, that can actually be used to encourage people to use hydrogen stations in um, California but also there's a real demand at the data centers because one of the problems with hydrogen is right now it's like being in the oil business before there were cars. So, right. <laughs> you know, you kind of build it and they will come. Okay, fine. But how do you build it profitably? Right. And there's very few hydrogen companies out there turning up. Yep. The, so let, let's, let's get into hydrogen. Um, and I think as a backdrop, you and I talked about this the other night at dinner. Back in the, the late 90s when oil went to 12, I at Stevens became a power technology guy. One, it sounded cooler than oil and gas guy. And two, there was just nothing to do in, in oil and gas. And the the internet wave was starting. And so kind of the thesis we carved out after trial and error was that basically the grid delivered 99.9% reliable power. That actually meant that there were eight hours of downtime a year on the grid and something like 90% of all the downtime was five or 10 seconds or less. So it was a blip, which didn't matter to your refrigerator, right? Cause it would just cycle down and cycle back up and you wouldn't even miss a beat. It really matters to a microchip and data centers and computers and all that. So we kind of had this thesis of the grid was going to have to go from 99.9% reliability. And I don't remember if we said five nines or seven nines. Of, right. of real, so a lot of the technology we were looking at was ways to, to, to buttress kind of the grid for backup type power. And one of the companies we, we uh, invested in had, in effect, a reversible fuel cell. It basically took electricity and generated hydrogen out of it, reverse electrolysis. Yep. And the thought was, is that at night, you know, when power is really cheap and you can produce as much power as you want and because there's not a big demand on the grid, you just, in effect, fill up a big container of hydrogen and then use that for peaking power, run it through the, through the, uh, the fuel cell um and create your electricity so and there was a hydrogen market an industrial hydrogen market at the time uh so the thought was you could use these machines to generate hydrogen sell hydrogen and in effect make a little money while you did this but the big thing was was going to be storage around this company we we got it public i can't even i don't even know what wound up happening to it but that was my view of hydrogen has the market changed much since then that was 20 some odd years ago so interestingly markets kind of come full circle on that um so 
best way to think of hydrogen isn't in its uh, j just uh, we've got a wide range of listeners, so I should clarify something. We always have to dummy things down right. for my mother. <laughs> right. Well, I shouldn't say dummy things down for mother. Make it simpler for mother. Yeah. yeah. If you don't understand it well enough, you know, you're not yeah. able to speak about it simply. So we should think of hydrogen as really like another sort of form of battery, a great way, a great a great store for electricity, a liquid store for electricity, if you will, as a former colleague once said. Um, so the hydrogen is a fantastic store of power, far, far better than almost anything we have. Combined with a hydrogen fuel cell, um, it's one of the best, most econom economical weight-wise um, uh, transfers of power we have so it's fantastically useful for things like planes where weight is a real concern where lithium-ion batteries are incredibly heavy relative like 10 times heavier that's uh, always one of the great stats i like is that boeing and airbus don't even have patents on electric planes yet. yeah you know i mean so the whole battery thing for yeah. planes and doesn't yeah, work. doesn't Simply work. Doesn't, you don't have the range, and it's too heavy. Yeah. Doesn't work unless there's a material step change. You'll never go get there. So for air transport, hydrogen helps. For ships, kind of the same story. And yeah. there's some really interesting developments in tech. Um, I'll talk about our proprietary pellets later, but uh, where you can make hydrogen from an electrochemical reaction from a rare earth oxide alloy. Um, but ships, again, great opportunity to make uh, hydrogen from seawater that they can pump on board and react. And trucks. So what we're really talking about here is hydrogen as a replacement or a proxy for diesel. It's a really good way of thinking. Basically, stuff that ran on gas before should probably shift to electric batteries. Stuff that is running on diesel at the moment. So your big 18 readers, right. where you need to be able to haul a great load and um, you, you have to be able to have good range, good power, be relatively light. Their hydrogen kicks in. But also to your point, um, there's great opportunity to use hydrogen as a... Uh, a kind of a peaking uh, device for power generation. So it's it's almost like a, one great big static battery. Yeah, there's absolutely that possibility. And for using it on things like power plants, absolutely, that's why power plants, data centers, not power plants. Right. Um, so you, uh, you've definitely got the potential to use hydrogen in, in those kind of power management situations as well as power generation. So hydrogen can be uh, in certain disaster relief areas or perhaps um, portable power generation for the likes of the military um, with technology that has come through this year, um, this, this pellet technology. Um, you have the capacity to generate power in uh, in a distributed manner. All right, Carmen. So that's kind of the framework for what hydrogen can do. 
where are we in the world today exactly what is it doing um and then number two because the knock on hydrogen is it's expensive and it's not really that scalable and yeah. so so there's actually four issues okay add issues on all right add issues it's too expensive yeah it's hard to scale it's all centralized which leads to the fourth issue it's really hard to transport. Right. Really hard to transport. So it's not fungible. It's not commoditized. Yeah. And that's who pay. As I said earlier, that's what attracts me to it. Okay. Because if you can solve these problems, great. So too expensive. Yeah, you've got steam methane reformation at its source can produce about $3 a key, which is, is good. That's less than diesel. The problem is then you've got to add another three dollars a key or so on to transport it to where it's being consumed right because it's not all being consumed right next to a refinery um electrolysis is even more expensive it's about eight dollars a key people optimistically think that gets down to three dollars a key largely driven by assumptions around renewable energy cheaper electricity still uses drinking water i'm somewhat dubious that we do see $3 a kilogram electrolysis. Um, I actually don't think power prices drop as fast as uh, the consensus uh, projection is, but we'll see. Right. Um, it'd be great to see it fall. But again, centralized, massive electrolyzer. You know, you're not talking about distributed manufacture. Um, there are some great advances. Uh, the previous company I worked with, Gen H2, on liquid storage, applying. NASA technology um, through exclusive license to develop transportation uh, methods. Um, so by liquid hydrogen, it's great. There's some discussion about using ammonia to transport hydrogen long range. That used to be an okay idea up until this year, and I'll explain what changed. Um, so we've got issues with the cost of generation. We've got issues on how scalable it is because it's all centralized and issues with transport. Now, this is basically exactly what um, the company that I've co-founded addresses. Um, I've worked with some absolutely brilliant scientists, former MIT PhDs, UCAL PhDs. These guys used to work on the Trident missile, uh, uh, making nanomaterials for it. They were um, the lead uh, nano engineering team for Schlumberger, made over 150 patents, and they've actually created a rare earth oxide alloy that, when put in water, any kind of water, it's salinity insensitive, um, be it salt water, filtered sewage water, drinking water, reacts and makes hydrogen, and it makes hydrogen cheaper than steam methane reformation half the price of electrolysis. So on cheapness, it solves it. This can be done at any scale. This can be done on a localized scale, your gas station level or centralized, not that you'd ever need to do it in bulk centrally. And it changes the way energy is transported. Simply put, it commoditizes hydrogen because you can now ship these pellets. Like So Japan wants hydrogen, doesn't have great energy security still burning fuel oil in some power plants. You can now ship them containers of these pellets. They can pump water from the sea 
and have very very simple low capex reactors. So let's give let's give mom the uh, the analogy here. I mean, are we talking almost kind of like Alka Seltzer? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, right? Yeah, this <laughs> the Alka Seltzer. So, uh, so basically, we're we're shipping Alka Seltzer out. We drop in the water and plop plop fizz fizz. There That's we right. go. We've got. Now, you know, you, you you need to do it, of course, in a in a closed container, right. um, but very very simple. The structural side of it is very very simple. It's just a closed container that you can add the reagent pellets, and then you you do get a byproduct. You do get hydroxide as a byproduct, but that's got application in uh, cement, uh, in um, uh, fertilizer, or it can be used to treat sewage and lower the pH of sewage. So. Um, you know, it's it's not it's an easy byproduct to uh, deal with. So, how far are you along in this technology? Is it you did it in the lab one time in a cup? What what what's kind of what what's kind of the the work you've done so far to to start getting your hands around being able to commercialize this? Sure. So, um, this was invented at sort of one point uh, in. 2014 by Invendo, our CTO. The 1.0 version, uh, which is aluminium-based as the core of the alloy, um, is being experimented on still now by MIT to understand exactly what he created and how it right. worked. Um, that invented that whilst he was at Schlumberger. He went and went and worked for an MIT startup and then two or three years ago created his own startup over the last three years, he's been thinking, how can I focus down the nano engineering on this and create a lower price point, one he much cheaper, more than six thousand percent cheaper than the one he invented in uh, twenty fourteen. Because price matters, right? Right. Um, it has to, to come back to what we were saying earlier. All these things have to be economic, right? Sense. And then uh, focusing on. Uh, making sure it doesn't passivate. A big issue you have on these electrochemical reactions is basically they're not quite catalysts because they are consumed in the process. But I'm going to use in, inappropriately use the word, word catalyst. These catalysts you drop in to cause the electrochemical reaction. After a while, they get like a layer of rust, as it were, around them, which makes them inert. So he's had to molecularly change the alloy so it doesn't passivate. And its salinity intensity, because we ideally want to do this with seawater or sewage water, right? As opposed to drinking water, which I personally believe, as former commodities trader, I believe drinking water becomes commoditized in the next twenty years, which is another problem with electrolysis and steam methane reformation. They use drinking water. Yeah, no, that's interesting. I mean, Enron tried that back in the day right. with the Xerix. They went, they went down that that path. So basically, to to get to where the technology is today, you've you've experimented in the lab. Yes, that gives you your basis of all right. How much do the ingredients cost? Yes. How much hydrogen came out? Yes. I mean, any reason to think if you used and I'll just make this simple: one unit of material and you generated X amount of hydrogen. Any reason to think if you use 450 units of the material you don't get the same linear no, creation of chemistry scalable that's yeah. the great thing chemistry is chemistry so yeah it works that way at any scale 
Um, there, there's no, there's no difference at all. Um, there are some things that you could do to optimize uh, the uh, the process with exploring the potential of electromagnetic fields uh, improve the reaction, but we don't need any of that. Like we've got a, a great reaction as it is um, right now. Certainly one we're comfortable taking to market. Of course, it's a <laughs> Um, it's a fun game. We've got some really interesting investors right now, which is great. Uh, uh, it's about what information you reveal to who. We do have a patent. We've got a lot more trade secrets than that patent. So um, it's a matter of cautiously showing people enough that they're interested and engaged. Right. And then as we go down the due diligence period, rating till the very last minute for like the final investors, to show like full scope of everything because that yes. sounds like dating <laughs> it is yeah yeah exactly exactly yeah. like dating right as, now yeah as the single guy i've been down this path but um <laughs> no so so you've got your arms around it i think you've talked you and i talked at dinner the other night um call it one dollar a kilogram three dollars a kilogram yeah. somewhere in there yeah, so and how does that translate into like Something that the the audience would know, like you know, a gallon of diesel or yeah. something. So you think of it as kind of two to one, like a kilogram of hydrogen is roughly two gallons of diesel. Okay. And so called diesel, three dollars a pop. That's probably the equivalent of six dollar hydrogen at the pump. Gotcha. And so we believe because we're generating at the pump, even after storage compression, depending on how well we secure our supply chain, of course, because this is ultimately a commoditized thing we believe we'll be able to price at three to four dollars at the pump gotcha making a little margin we're not going for big margin because it makes more sense for us to drive adoption by being cheap yeah um so we are uh planning on having at least one station in california next year california does yield uh lcfs credits and when we get carb certified with a, a zero carbon intensity score uh, for our method of hydrogen generation, we should be able to generate pretty good value um, for our investors through LCFS um, generation and use that as a full-scale working uh, model to demonstrate that the tech works. And that we're really looking to just partner with um, the various incumbent uh, hydrogen companies and energy companies to deploy the technology. You know, we really, uh, we really just want to see it as widely spread as possible. I mean, something you taught me. I think the first time we went and had um, had, I think we went and ate lunch, not dinner. But um, there are ten thousand hydrogen cars in California right now as yeah. we speak. Hey, it went up. It went up a hundred percent this year. It's crazy, which is awesome, right? Um, I was talking to the guys at Loves about this, and uh, I said, I said, I gave my statistic. I was about eight thousand cars on the roads, and they yeah. said there were last year. There's another eight thousand this year. Toyota Mirai's, yeah, they're really popular. I mean, they're great cars. They're great cars. Like the immediate power and pickup. Like I've been. I, went with the Nicola guys to their 
see there, I think it's called the Badger, and like it's an awesome car, man. Like the power and pickup of it is is great. And so this is this is pretty interesting. So you, for lack of a better, we'll call it a gas hydrogen station. Yep. You pull your car up. Is it is the hydrogen coming into the car in a gaseous form or a liquid? Okay, so it's coming in a gaseous form. And then what actually powers the car? Is it a fuel cell? Yeah, or? fuel cell. Okay. So, yeah, that, that's what I was thinking about it as when we were saying about, think about it like a, a store of electricity. Yeah. yeah you pump in the, the gaseous hydrogen and the fuel cell converts it. But you don't need to like, the hydrogen is just like charging. Electric. I mean, it's, it's well, electricity and water, right? You can fuel it up in 10 minutes. And right. Well, and then you're good for 500 miles. Oh, wow. Yeah. So yeah, and yeah, it's it's got power. Like you should see these hydrogen motorbikes. Yeah, are, are basically unrideable. They're so powerful. <laughs> evil can evil on do, steroids. You know, like you put a Kawasaki and a Ducati, and they have like an evil hybrid baby. That's what these bikes are. They are so so powerful. So in the lab, we've been able to create hydrogen shouldn't be a big step in terms of having a commercial application. No. You're going to have your station in uh, in California. God bless the taxpayers of California for yep. paying you money and uh, uh, and the like if they don't go broke. But um, so you'll do that. That's kind of the first step. Let's get really weird and deep, and we probably shouldn't be doing this at 845 <laughs> in the morning. We should be doing it nine at night after a bottle of wine. But Let's say this works and, you know, a buck a kilogram. So in effect, diesel, you're generating at 50 cents. And I mean, there's going to be more cost to it. Yeah. But, you know, let's, okay, let's say 75 cents for diesel or a buck for a gallon of diesel, whatever the case may be. Doesn't this just like, isn't this a big fucking deal? Yeah. I mean, tell me how that changes the world. It's given me chills. Ever since, you know, I really deep dove with our CTO, Indranil, and went through this. This changes the entire world. Um, it changes energy, changes energy supply, energy security. Um, these reagents are mined in the U.S. and Canada, so they're in U.S. hands. Um, it means that using clean energy becomes affordable in the developing world you can start exporting clean energy solutions where there's because it's pellets right pellets yeah just don't get them wet when you're transporting (laughs) exactly exactly Uh, um yeah you commoditize hydrogen it changes absolutely if you're a commodity trader like me it blows my mind how much of a change this is like when you realize how many of these high value blockers the cost of generation, how you transport it, the fact that it's too centralized, when all of them fall at once to one technology, yeah, it's a game changer. It's a massive game changer. I, I mean, I'm delighted that I've been invited to be CEO of this uh, hydrogen company, Damolf Hydrogen, do business as Green, Rev- Green Revolution. I think it is revolution, but really I'm just the custodian of this technology, this, the, the amazing work has been done by Indra Nil and his wife Ting. Like this is it's game changing. And this is just one of the inventions that they've made with nanotechnology. This was 
this guy's attention for a few years. I mean, they're absolute geniuses. It's extraordinary. And I don't think they quite realised they wanted to make hydrogen in a green way, greenest way. Right. I don't think they quite realised that it was also the cheapest way and how transformative it is for for the supply chain. Um, They just wanted to make green hydrogen mobile man. Yeah, no, really, uh, really interesting stuff. The because you're right. I mean, to the extent, and I said this earlier in the podcast, and you know, it bears repeating though. I mean, if we were starting an energy infrastructure build out right now, and we just had a bunch of dirt on our land, right, nothing right. else there, we probably would start with hydrogen. I mean, no, no greenhouse gas emissions from it, et cetera. I mean, we'd have to deal with the Hindenburg and the fact right. <laughs> that it's highly combustible, but outside of that. Right. I mean, and like, look, nothing's perfect, right? So technically water is a greenhouse gas um, from the emission from burning hydrogen, but it's a very minor one. There's lots of water in our system. And like, look, the other side of it is ours doesn't use drinking water. It doesn't use electricity. But ultimately, the the reagent pellet is mined at some point. So we do have an environmental footprint. Nonetheless, I think we're the greenest solution out there. I sincerely do. We're not perfect, but I think we're as good as we can. Yeah, you know, just um, – and I probably should have started the podcast by saying this. When we went to dinner the other night, you asked me – but I consider being on the board and after I gave my full disclosures of, you know, you ought to aspire to more and what would be the dress code at the board meetings and whether I could wear my, <laughs> my, my, my hoodies or not. And we'll continue to, to, to talk about all that stuff, but just a little bit of advice. Cause I've been thinking a lot about what we talked about the other night at, at dinner. I think a really aggressive early and often reaching out, to the environmentalist movement and educating them on what you've got. Uh, and just like you just said, hey, here's why I think we're really good. Here are our issues. Here's how we're going to mitigate our env- environmental impact. I think is really important because, one, those folks actually uh, have a big, huge voice. Yeah. Um, and so I, th- I think it's important. And I think a huge mistake we in the oil and gas business made, and I talked about this, I think two podcasts ago, I think one of the biggest mistakes we made is we didn't tell people what was in frac fluid. You know, we didn't say, Hey guys, it's water and sand and a couple of other things here. I can drink it. It's not that bad. We created a mystery around it. Yeah. And that really gave the environmental movement a leg up in terms of being able to, portray it as evil, portray it as damaging. And so just two cents worth for what it what what it's worth for me is really to the extent you can educate the other side and as much transparency as you give, I think that's really going to be helpful. Cause an adoption by the environmentalist movement, I think will will go a long way to help you securing kind of your 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 footprint, if you will. Yeah, I mean I, I think that's absolutely case i think now you have the way people communicate is different 
So I think direct communication through means such as this, the, a direct, you know, there's no cuts here. Just sitting down and having an open dialogue is so important. Um, I, I think, you know, the environmentalists are 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 our core supporters here. Um, but we are a for-profit business. We're just going to be operating in an ethical manner. And, you know, there will be challenges that we have to address. You know, some things in order to protect our profitability, we're you know, concerned about, of course, uh, patent piracy. So we have to be a little careful in some things with trade secret. But we also want to speak very openly and honestly about what happens in the reaction. What is the bipodroxide? How will that be handled? Because it is a form of acid. So I think, if, as you say, if you can communicate things clearly from the get-go and there's no attempts to, uh, to conceal something, then there isn't a suspicion. We want to be open with people from day one. Um, Indrindil and Ting have got, uh, they've got Shlamazre stamped all over them in terms of the uh, quality control. And, you know, uh, they're very much engineers and with a really strong uh, ethical drive. Um, and so this is ultimately their company. And, that that's how we want to do business. Well, that's really interesting. I wish you the the best of luck on it because it's it's fascinating. The you know I was talking to a young call I'll call him energy transition investor the other day, and they were going through you know all the various fuel t cell type stuff, and I, I go you you do know that all those companies that you're talking about right now. I called on all those companies in the late nineties, you know, 20 some odd right. years ago and was walking through and, you know, the guy was like, well, you know, so much has changed and there's so much more money available by all the large oil and gas companies. I go, well, time out back then it was Enron, El Paso, all those guys providing all the money. And the technology was at about the, uh, the same point. And I said, don't feel bad that I'm sitting here schooling you as the old boomer. Because back in the late 90s, I went to eat uh, lunch with uh, one of my dad's really good friends who's been a longtime energy guy, and we talked fuel cells, and he knew all about it. And I go, Jim, you're a pipeline guy. How do you know all about this? And he goes, oh, there was a wave of it back in the yeah. 70s. So, yeah. you know, hydrogen <laughs> tech was really developed after World War II. Right. You know, I mean, yeah. like, it ain't new. Yeah. There's been surprisingly little innovation, and the reason is the only – real market for it except some forklift trucks in uh warehouses was nasa nasa yeah. was what moved the needle in the technology and even then that was more storage that wasn't generation right so yeah i i sincerely believe that indranil at damorph hydrogen has made the most significant development in hydrogen in yeah yeah i mean decades I a gazillion years, yeah, yeah, for that matter, decades, and and yeah, no, and I I think you're I think you're thinking about it right in terms of there is this tidal wave that we need less carbon, and it's being driven you know commercially uh, outside of it's being driven by governments but also outside of of governments, but more importantly, 
you got to beat diesel. Every time you and I have talked about Must. this, you're like, I got to beat them economically. I yep. got to be cheaper. I got to yep. be cheaper. I got to be cheaper. You so. have to because you can't rely on the government subsidies. Government subsidies may be there for a while. They'll be there, but they won't be there forever. Right. That supports your build out. You have to provide a better cost, a value, better value proposition for the consumer. And and the technology is there, you know, uh, Hyzon, uh, Nikola, they have trucks ready to go. There's just not as much demand for them yet. So it comes a chicken and egg scenario. What comes right. first? Infrastructure and the truck or the trucks. Well, clearly it's the infrastructure. Right. That ain't the chicken and the egg scenario. Right. You need the infrastructure. So, and then like who builds it nationwide when there's not the support? So I would love to see an LCFS rolled out across multiple states to support hydrogen build out. But, um, that, and, and let's see, let's see. We've got a clear path in California. We will see what happens then how, how you get it um, nationwide. We'll see. So two things. One, definitely come back as uh, you've had developments because we'd love to keep track on this story and hear how you're doing. And uh, two, when you have a milestone of some sort, either getting a financing raised or that first uh, station opens in California or whatever it is, and there's a closing dinner. We have Lou at it, right? Hundred percent, absolutely. Uh, we'll 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 uh, we'll uh, if you do come on the board, then uh, Lou has to be some kind of a uh, advisor, stroke, uh, counselor to both of us. So an interpreter, interpreter, <laughs> <laughs> and an audience. The reason that's funny, and I love Lou to death, but I mean that is the heavy dutiest New York accent I've ever heard. Yeah. And I think it's the reason we've been we've been such good friends is he can tell me the same stories every time we box, and I only <laughs> understand about a third of it. So I always pick up something new each time, and he didn't have to think of new bullshit to say. Yeah, right. Oh, fantastic! Thank you very much, Chuck. I really Absolutely, appreciate thank you it. for Thanks coming so. on, Carmen. Yeah.